cost management is growing in importance for companies that want to manage their significant cloud bills. Kubernetes plays an increasing role in modern infrastructure, so managing the cost of Kubernetes clusters becomes important as well. KubeCost is a company focused on giving visibility into Kubernetes resources and reducing spend. Webb Brown is a founder of KubeCost and joins the show to talk about Kubernetes cost optimization and what he's building with KubeCost. KubeCost could be an interesting infrastructure solution to people who are spending too much on Kubernetes. Webb, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Okay. Many people are managing Kubernetes clusters. What are some difficulties in managing a Kubernetes cluster? Well, there's, yeah, a lot of complexity that comes, especially with with scale. You know, one of the areas that we really focus on is, is helping teams get, you know, cost visibility and specifically cost management. But we think there's still a fair amount of complexity to be managed, uh, whether it's, you know, performance management, reliability management, you know, access control. We still think that there's a good bit of complexity in the kind of day two part of the journey that a lot of teams are really focused on solving as more and more teams get to real production scale with Kubernetes. When you do go to production and you're managing a Kubernetes cluster, how much manual work is needed to scale up and scale down that cluster? Yeah, it's a good question. And it, and it really varies, I think, about, you know, by the team and their kind of maturity level on, on Kubernetes. We do see more and more teams using you know, tools like cluster autoscaling or, or pod autoscaler. But even with those, there's oftentimes some like, you know, manual oversight or, or manual configuring those actual tools. So there's still a good bit of a manual work, whether it be, again, kind of access control, security related, or, you know, again, actual workload or infrastructure scaling. I think we're seeing a lot uh, of, again, new tools and improvement in tools to take out some of that manual element. But today, there's still a, a good bit of, of manual work to, to really scale infrastructure to, you know, massive, massive, you know, clusters with hundreds or even thousands of nodes. You work on KubeCost. What is that? Yeah, so KubeCost is a platform for giving teams that run Kubernetes cost visibility and cost management solutions. So we're built on open source. We come in and let teams see cost allocation by, say, namespace, label, uh, you know, cluster, even all the way down to the individual pod or container level. And then with that visibility, we give them insights and uh, a small bit of optional automation to actually help them manage that on an ongoing basis. That's included with additional governance oversights, things like budget alerts uh, within Kubernetes clusters, like you know efficiency threshold alerts, that sort of thing. So really, again, a lot of our visibility is within Kubernetes, but we're really focused on teams that, that run Kubernetes and all of the related services they're using that may be outside of the cluster as well. There are a lot of different cost monitoring platforms out there. Could you explain what you focused on? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it speaks to a little bit of like our, our backgrounds. Uh, my co-founder and I, before starting the company, were at Google working on infrastructure monitoring. Given the nature of Google's infrastructure, a lot of that was focused on containerized workloads. And what we saw was that as teams transitioned to containerization and specifically orchestration platforms like Kubernetes, there's a lot of new complexity that's introduced 
technical complexity. There's also a lot more likelihood that infrastructure is going to be really dynamic. So like we were talking about, you know, infrastructure and workloads are going to be dynamically scaling, you know, across region, across nodes, maybe even across accounts or across providers. And then third is that technical or engineering decisions are getting made differently is what we commonly see. And, and oftentimes they're getting made in a more decentralized way where each individual team may be controlling more and more in their kind of deployment configuration decisions. So as a result of this, uh, we just feel like fundamentally there's a platform shift when teams move to Kubernetes and it just necessitated new tools specifically for cost visibility and, and cost management. And how does KubeCost compare to standard cloud cost monitoring products? Yeah, I think there's there's kind of three main differences that we see. The first is that we are truly uh, Kubernetes first. So we, we truly build all of our products with teams that have Kubernetes at the heart of their infrastructure. And when we first launched the product, what we were seeing is that most teams that were in this position were kind of building something their own, whether, whether it be kind of estimates on Grafana dashboards or kind of building their own data pipelines. And then secondly, our product is based entirely on open source. So we have our own open source repos. We also integrate really tightly with other open source projects in the Kubernetes ecosystem like Prometheus and Grafana. And then third is that with our product by default, uh, and it's something that's really important to us, is that users get to own and control all of their own data. So they don't have to egress any information to us, you know, any of our remote servers or anything like that. They, they truly have total control over their data. So what should I expect from KubeCost after I install it into my Kubernetes cluster? Yeah, great question. I think first and foremost, uh, most teams can install it in less than five minutes. It's truly just like a Helm install or de deploy a, a YAML file to your cluster. Um, from there, we take read-only privilege privileges by default. So you can see in our product after deployment, you can see breakdown across really any meaningful concept uh, that you want to see. Uh, so you can see cost broken down by namespace, you know, by team, product, environment, project, etc., where all of those concepts kind of map to your internal organization, whether that be by Kubernetes label, annotation, etc. You can see that data by microservice, you can see it by controller, and again, you can even see individual pod or workload. So tons of different visibility on the allocation side. You can also see just an aggregate view of when you're, where you are spending resources. So things like, you know, you're spending money on nodes and load balancers and disk uh, and even out of cluster assets uh, like, you know, S3 buckets or, you know, Cloud SQL or RDS instances. Uh, so we would give you that kind of full visibility and again, kind of breakdown in cost. So from there, we would also give you insights into how you can reduce spend and specifically reduce spend while balancing performance and reliability constraints. So we would give you insights to say you're at risk of being CPU throttled or hitting an out of memory eviction while also balancing that with helping you again, reduce the amount of resources that are provisioned or finding the lowest cost class of resources available to you. 
So it's really both of those things kind of available out of the box in that, you know, less than five minute install visibility, as well as those insights around managing or optimizing spin. How does KubeCost compare to monitoring products like Grafana and Prometheus? Yeah, so our, our product is actually built on top of Prometheus and, and tightly integrated. And so what we do is we generate a bunch of new metrics available for Prometheus. Specifically, we would integrate with your billing APIs across all the major cloud providers, and we would provide that data available directly in Prometheus for, for teams to query against. That, in turn, can also be viewed directly in Grafana. Uh, so we you know, work really tightly with those open source technologies and, again, expose kind of new data, you know, new metrics that are available for, for new visualizations. And a lot of those are, again, are around you know, cost visibility or cost allocation, as well as uh, cost optimization or cost, cost management. What kinds of cost optimizations do people make? Like what kinds of savings do people get out of using a cost optimization tool? You can think about this as like being relevant to different parts of the stack. So if you look at your actual infrastructure, uh, you can say, you know, what like class of nodes are you using or what size of, of nodes or VMs are you using? You can also say you're using, you know, on-demand versus spot versus say, you know, savings plans or reserved instances. So a number of insights that are available at the infrastructure level. And then on top of that, if you go kind of one layer up, if you look at the orchestration layer, there's a number of insights available. So how are you using things like cluster auto-scaling? How are they configured? Are there configuration options that are preventing that from working efficiently? Are you replicated across multiple zones in, in your actual cluster deployment? So a number of things there. And then a third is actually at the workload level or uh, like resource, like workload resource uh, provisioning or, or configuration. So things like tuning uh, the size of pods, so requests and limits. If you have like abandon or uh, orphan resources, so things that have been uh, provisioned but are not actually in use anymore. So really we see insights at all three levels. And depending on your situation, we've seen, you know, each one of those layers have a 30 plus percentage, you know, spin reduction impact. But it really just kind of depends on kind of how you've managed your infrastructure to date. And oftentimes the complexity in your organization, as well as kind of ap applications that you're building on top of Kubernetes. So say in more detail, what are the different areas of my infrastructure that I want cost optimization on related to Kubernetes? Yeah, so if you look just at the infrastructure layer, I think you can break this down into three different components. The first being the amount of resources that are provisioned. Uh, so here, one of the most common exercises is like a right-sizing exercise. So you could say, given that I have these workloads that demand this amount of CPU, this amount of GPU, this amount of memory, et cetera. We can run essentially like a bin packing algorithm uh, in our product that helps you determine the right size of uh, nodes or you know, each one of those resources that should be uh, provisioned. 
and that we do we help you do in the context of your specific you know environment so if it's a dev cluster versus a prod cluster you'd want to provision different resources so that's kind of part one the amount of resources so part two of that would be uh, the amount of time that those resources are provisioned this is where things like cluster auto scaling come into play this is where things like dynamically turning down say staging or testing environments or you know scaling your infrastructure in an intelligent way based on some either reactive or predictive uh, like demand model so that's kind of part two which is just around timing and then part three is really focused on the the cost of those individual resources uh, so again if you if you know that you need you know, 10 CPUs, you may have different options in terms of usage type, so spot versus on-demand, for et cetera. You may have opportunities to make an investment in, say, a reserved instance or a savings plan. And you may also have options in terms of uh, which you know, region or even provider you run that in. Uh, so it's really a, a around those three different areas where there's a, a number of key decisions that can have a really big impact on infrastructure cost and reliability as well. As you mentioned, you work at Google. You worked at Google. Can you say more about what Google did for cost optimization or, or just server optimization? Yeah. You know, Google is such a, a, a massive like organization. There was a lot done. You can look at it in, in several different layers. One is you know, a lot of individual engineering teams did a lot of like optimization for their application using either metrics that they generate or would be available from like centralized monitoring teams. And then there's also centralized teams that are looking at, you know, same things like health performance and cost monitoring. And again, I think you can also further split that between, you know, internal like engineering teams and then say, you know, engineering teams focus on external things like Google, Google Cloud products. So there's a, a ton of investment from applying like new machine learning models and also just kind of more manually going in there and saying removing orphan workloads, for example. So I think you can say that there's a bunch of you know teams really focus on it, and there's also you know engineers throughout the organization that think about it on kind of a, a recurring basis. Now, of course, within Google, they're not really looking at it as a cost optimization as much as a, like a financial cost optimization as much as a resource optimization problem. If you look at optimization, cl cloud cost optimization from a financial perspective versus just a raw, raw resource utilization perspective, how do things change? I think you're exactly right. You know, within Google, it was more common to look at this from like a resource quota a resource or just like overall capacity constraints and less as a focus on um, kind of, you know, ROI. I think that when you, when you look at it, you know, from a, a dollar standpoint, you introduce a lot of new like strategic and, you know, business questions. And that's kind of, you know, like we're spending X dollars on this microservice. What is it actually doing for our company or for our overall, you know, software application that we're offering to, to say, internal or external users. Um, and I think that that brings in, you know, new decisions, again, around, you know, say, shifting from on-demand to spot, et cetera, that could still meet the same capacity constraints, but would be like a, a more financial decision. 
And then I think it also kind of introduces a lot of these uh, strategic decisions where you see teams like FinOps, you know, getting involved in helping make some of these kind of engineering, but also, you know, business strategy decisions. Tell me about the engineering behind KubeCost. So the interesting thing here is that the KubeCost open source project was started by my co-founder, Ajay Tripathi, who was an infrastructure engineer at Google and then Yelp before this. It was started before we actually started this as like, you know, an official, you know, company or or startup. And so we truly started the project uh, in mind, first and foremost, to just be helpful to teams and to build the like experience that we wanted. And by part of that, we were, again, big believers in Prometheus and Grafana as initial solutions. So we built the backend in uh, Go first. And what that uh, did was, it, again, it essentially created a Prometheus metric exporter so that we generated a bunch of these like new new metrics for Prometheus to use. And initially, we just exposed them on Grafana dashboards. And then we came behind and built our like UI, which is predominantly React uh, today. But you can find that original uh, like GitHub repo still out there under the like you know KubeCost organization name, and it is our our go backend that is used today for not only our open source but also for our like commercial tiers of our product as well. What's the biggest engineering problem you had to solve in building KubeCost? There's just there's tons of technical complexity here when you you think about how dynamic uh, Kubernetes deployments or, or clusters typically are, uh, whether it's, you know, jobs uh, being constantly introduced, you know, pods coming up and going down, nodes coming up and going down, et cetera. Overall, just managing that complexity and managing at scale is where we've spent the majority of, the, of our time over the past year and a half. And so we now have teams with, you know, thousands and thousands of nodes running our product and we do that at all major cloud providers across all different like asset types. So again, thinking that you know you're running a very specific type of GPU on spot in say any region in the world on AWS, we're going to handle that, and we're going to handle it if that you know like GPU is only up and running for say ten minutes uh, and then it goes away. So being able to do that manage that complexity at scale and give users real-time data was like a, a really challenging problem to solve. And, and again, it's what we've mostly been focused on the past year and a half. Can you share more about how people have used KubeCost, particularly in ways that, that might surprise you? Yeah, we've seen a, a ton of like really interesting use cases. I think you know, first and foremost is around the like real-time nature of this data. Teams, because we are writing this data back to Prometheus, a lot of teams that are already using things like Alert Manager did a bunch of really interesting things here. So one example would be, one that I've seen a couple times recently, is to say, you know, if all of my workloads in this, say, namespace across this like spend threshold and there's this amount of waste, or specifically we're below this efficiency threshold, uh, let's alert the owner 
which we know, you know, based on these labels that are set, uh, we know that the owner hangs out in this Slack workspace. So really the ability to just be super uh, like, you know, targeted with when and where that alert is delivered around cost visibility to us is a super interesting use case and is just really exciting and very much like fits with our mission of just empowering developers to have access to this information um, just so there's more and more visibility. So it's not, you know, finance coming at the end of the month saying, why in the world are we spending this amount of money, right? The, the engineering team uh, just has, you know, some level of understanding and awareness of just absolute spend as well as kind of overall, you know, spend efficiency. So I think the, you know, that use case and just kind of the class of use cases around using data in real time to like proactively detect what, what looks to be an issue and addressing it, you know, then and there, as opposed to waiting till the end of the month or to the end of the quarter and seeing it be a much bigger problem. Do you see KubeCost as competitive with the larger cost optimization platforms, or do you see it as just kind of like a smaller niche cost optimization business? We very much want to be the absolute best for teams running Kubernetes. We like we want to give the best, you know, insights, the best like user experience, like you know, that is our focus today. We have a number of teams that that run our product uh, side by side with kind of more legacy, you know, cost monitoring solutions. So we definitely see an opportunity for us to uh, kind of you know be even collaborative or partners there because there's a lot of spend and things outside of kind of the immediate cloud infrastructure touched by Kubernetes. So we, we do not view ourselves as, as kind of competitive uh, with, the, with those solutions today by any means. In thinking about the cost optimization market, I sometimes compare it to like the monitoring market where you have all these different players and then you have some really big players like a Datadog who are just taking um, you know a much larger market share but it doesn't mean that the other ones aren't other other companies aren't successful. Do you think the cost monitoring platform because there's no n- network effects really? Do you think it's it's kind of a similar domain? Yeah, I, I don't think this is like a, a winner take all market by any means. I think it's it's a massive massive market. I think that you know when you look closely, a lot of teams have have different needs, right? So there's not a ton of uh, like homogenous needs when you look at like broad groups. And, and part of that is still, I think, how, you know, infrastructure teams or SRE or DevOps teams are organized. Uh, so I, so yes, I think there, there are lots of, lots of similarities for sure. Are there any application domains that are particularly hard to optimize like machine learning workloads? Here, the, the specifics of the situation uh, in, in my opinion, oftentimes trump, you know, kind of high-level class of application. I will say that uh, things that are uh, like you know, highly time-sensitive can be a little more challenging to to optimize. Things that are a little bit more like batch-oriented and less time-sensitive generally have like even more opportunities for 
for optimizations. Uh, but I would say in general, uh, there's no real class of uh, like workloads uh, that I'm familiar with that that don't uh, typically have opportunities for for gains, whether that be again optimizing for cost, performance, or reliability. Can you just give me more information about the runtime of KubeCost? Like once I've installed it, what is it doing on across my infrastructure? You know, as time goes on. Yeah, great question. So. What we do is we're, we're kind of doing two things. We're talking to the Kubernetes API, and we're also talking to your billing APIs to ingest new data or create new metrics. So that would do things like a new node joined your fleet or a new deployment was created with you know five replicas. Uh, we would be determining the cost of all of those new assets. And that same thing would apply with, you know, again, a a staple set was like scaled up or scaled down, for example. So we're generating those new metrics. And then in parallel, we're actually reading both the metrics we just created as well as other metrics to build this model uh, of the state of the world uh, across you know all of the clusters that we're monitoring. And so we build this model in memory, and then we actually uh, write it to disk if you deploy our product with a persistent volume or durable storage backing Prometheus in the form of like Thanos or Cortex or something else. And what that model allows us to do is we can really quickly say, what is the cost of say like this namespace of the last 180 days? Or what is the cost of this set of labels over the last 45 days? And we're able to do that without ever having to query the backing database, which is oftentimes from Prometheus. So we can just, like a, say, Google Analytics or other observability tools, we can answer questions that are really hard to answer uh, by just querying a, a database directly. And we can answer those oftentimes in you know, milliseconds or, or hundreds of milliseconds. Is it tough to make a monitoring service run like this without degrading the... Uh, overall latency of the system? No, I think we've like just given the kind of different isolation features available in Kubernetes. Uh, and given that we've purpose built this application uh, for our exact use case and our commercial tool, we've been able to, you know, not only like reduce load on an individual machine, but also do things like, uh, you know, effectively throttle or manage your load on, say, your underlying time series database like Prometheus. So I think we've, we've made some big investments there, but as a result, uh, it's really not, uh, hasn't been a problem. I think, you know, noisy neighbor problems in general on Kubernetes are still kind of an open problem space. I think there's been like great inroads here and there's some good like guardrails available. I expect we'll see these be hardened over time, both like in the Kubernetes framework itself, uh, as well as uh, you know tools, both observability and probably more you know, automation, help teams manage this on top of Kubernetes as well. Another question um, revolving around your your t- time at Google. Do the cost optimization tools that are required for a company as big as Google, 
How do those compare to the cost optimization tools that might be useful for a significantly smaller company? Yeah, yeah, great question. We kind of think of this in like three tiers, right? If you're a really small company, you're you're probably okay with, you know, just kind of having estimates or maybe just like, you know, winging it. And that could be, you know, you're less than 10 engineers or, or less than 20 engineers. And then on the really big end of the scale, you know, the Googles of the world, the like Netflix of the world, they oftentimes have, you know, proprietary systems in-house where, you know, there can be real value to either build something from the ground up or, you know, just use, say, our APIs to where they deeply integrate that into their environment. So oftentimes there's, you know, custom systems that they both, uh, you know, get a lot of value from and also have the resources to maintain and integrate, you know, existing solutions with. So I think there's a little bit more bias towards, again, having an API-only solution or just custom building something. But then there's a ton of space in the middle where kind of an off-the-shelf solution like a KubeCost can be super valuable because for most teams, like trying to recreate the wheel here isn't like part of their core value proposition. And instead, we can just get them great visibility you know, right out of the box that they can, again, have insights that they didn't have before and actually, you know, manage spend much more effectively. Do you have any insights on how costs of running a a Kubernetes cluster on Google Cloud compares to running one on Amazon or on Azure? I, I would say we have the underlying APIs available to like, you know, have insights there. I think that there's enough complexity and enough like that is dynamic that we haven't come out and like had any official you know studies or analysis on it. I would just say that when you're kind of making the decision across provider, uh, there's a lot of moving parts uh, you know that uh, like can influence that right, and and that can be in the cluster and out of cluster costs as well as just features, uh, you know, whether they be uh, kind of like cloud services directly or more, you know, meta features like identity management, oftentimes those can drive, you know, the decision even more so than cost. We have not, we we actually think that's, uh, and this is kind of off the record maybe, but like, I think it's really interesting. We have not done any like really in-depth analysis to say that, you know, cloud provider A is, is less expensive than cloud provider B. Um, and our perspective is, and again, just kind of off the record, is that uh, this is like a nuanced enough uh, decision-making problem that like you want to go really deep when you do this so that you can like give insights that are actually meaningful. While we're on the subject of cloud providers, why is anybody even running Kubernetes clusters? Why not just use these standalone container instances or like Cloud Run or, you know, Fargate? Why even run a cluster? Yeah, it's a great question. And you, you've you seen like insanely fast adoption of Kubernetes. And I think you have to say like at its core, it's because there's like real valuable propositions for teams. I think you can break this down into like several different decisions, which is if you're coming from like a, a VM world 
uh, why make the move to you know containerization and and microservices, et cetera. And then you can also make the decision, okay, if you're all in on containerization, what is the right platform for delivering that? Whether it's a you know something more serverless like a Knative or CloudRun or or kind of you know Kubernetes itself. And even there, there's more decisions of are you going with a more you know managed like you know GKE or EKS type solution, or you want to roll your own you know Kubernetes with something like Cops? I think it at a very high level, and I, I definitely think you know situation specifics matter here. But I think at a high level, this is a trade-off between like velocity as well as control. So when we work with you know, medium or, or large size enterprises, a lot of times the control they need for running all of their workloads, whether it be storage requirements, security requirements, networking requirements, etc., can oftentimes make it really hard for a totally serverless solution today to meet all of their needs. They may be running certain workloads on like a cloud run, for example, um, but from a control standpoint, uh, oftentimes we see compelling reasons for them to have more of the like flexibility and control available with running workloads directly on Kubernetes. And and I'll just maybe add to that, we do expect to see more and more teams running workloads on serverless solutions that are you know maybe built directly on top of Kubernetes, but we definitely expect Kubernetes to be at the core of a lot of team strategies going forward, just because of the great benefits around, again, you know, velocity in terms of time to release and ability to scale and just the control that you have available uh, for configuring or optimizing infrastructure and the workloads that are running on top of it. Do you often see people at an organization who are dedicated to lowering costs of clusters or is that more of the job of just individual service owners I think it's really it's a really interesting question I think that this is one we see a lot of different implementations of you know call it devops or or finops uh, whatever the the term you want to use for kind of uh, the the team or role that would kind of oftentimes manage this responsibility and we also think that this is is very much you know changing or or evolving. I think the most common pattern that we still see is a centralized uh, infrastructure engineering team that is has real responsibility uh, for certain aspects of managing infrastructure, but that they have also given a lot of capabilities to individual application engineering teams. And, you know, that could contain either spinning up new clusters or just say like managing deployments or replica sets, et cetera, directly themselves. So I think in practice, it's still uh, this like hybrid mode for most teams where there's like a centralized team that has some platform ownership, uh, but they intentionally uh, decentralize a lot of the kind of workload specific or team specific decision making process just so that individual engineering teams can run faster and kind of make more of those, you know, application specific decisions themselves.
Can you share some helpful boilerplate tips for how people can make their Kubernetes infrastructure more cost-effective? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh, again, kind of breaking this down by each individual component. Um, If you just look at the amount of resources that are provisioned, I think this is oftentimes like container right-sizing or deployment right-sizing. There's also just infrastructure right-sizing to make sure, again, you're running the right-size nodes given the the set of workloads you're you're looking to deliver and the kind of SLAs or time constraints that you're looking to deliver them with. I think there's also the second class around the amount of time or the actual scheduling of resources that are provisioned. So here, looking at things like cluster auto-scaling or dynamically turning down entire environments or subsets in, of environments based on some sort of business logic that's relevant to, to the team. And again, a small example would be, you know, we see a lot of teams with dev clusters that are a meaningful part of their spend, you know, just turning those down, say, after midnight, you know, and before 8 a.m. or something. And then a third class of decisions, which is, you know, just looking at kind of financial opportunities to lower the cost of each individual resource. Um, Common ones there are looking at the opportunity to run spot uh, nodes, depending on how your applications are architected or how you've uh, like, you know, structured the actual microservices that are deployed on Kubernetes, that could be really attractive. And then uh, also a second class would be something like reserved instances or committed use discounts or uh, savings plans, which essentially can let you make longer term commitments for a discount uh, on those individual resources that you are, you expect to be provisioning uh, you know, now and going forward. So I think around those three classes, there's oftentimes big opportunities for, for teams to reduce spend. Uh, when we work with teams, uh, most are able to, uh, able to achieve 30 plus percent savings uh, by some combination of those particular uh, you know, optimizations. You've written some about how um, autoscalers can be used to, cluster autoscalers can be used to improve the economics of a Kubernetes distribution or a Kubernetes deployment. Could you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. This is really giving teams the ability to dynamically scale the infrastructure resources that are provisioned uh, based on the actual uh, like usage demand from their end users. So these are tools that allow teams to you know, really scale down their infrastructure effectively uh, when their kind of applications aren't experiencing peak load. And there's a lot of, or a fair amount of configuration that uh, can be needed to, to get that right. And that could be things like, you know, setting pod disruption budgets or making sure that certain workloads uh, are annotated as safe to evict when they're using things like local storage, et cetera. But the net result of that is that, yeah, you can have massive uh, savings if you do have uh, variability in kind of you know resource demand over the course of a day, a week, or month. 
so that's kind of at the the cluster level. Uh, you can also do that for individual workloads uh, where appropriate and resize workloads uh, either from a request uh, standpoint, so they're directly reserving more or less resources, or you can also scale them from a replication standpoint where you have just more and more instances of the same application. Both there can be great depending on the the nuances of the workload, but can be great at reducing the actual resource consumption over time. Again, when you have variable demand for a particular microservice or a particular application. Um, do you have any beliefs around how um, these kind of cost optimization should be deployed? Like, does it get deployed as a as a sidecar or is it like a standalone server or an agent or can you, can you tell me more about the deployment model? Yeah. So Kubecross is deployed as you can think of like a, a single agent. Uh, it like optionally comes with, you know, UI and, and some other things uh, available. Uh, but that agent model we believe gives you kind of maximum flexibility in terms of the ability to, like collect data from a number of different sources, um, but then also have like a standalone uh, solution that kind of we as developers of that are responsible for. Um, whereas if you're kind of integrating as like a sidecar to an existing solution, it can be a little bit harder to kind of like manage that overall experience. And so yeah, we think that agent model you know works uh, works really well here. And again, our agent today is is very tightly integrated with, um, by default, a Prometheus deployment, which again we think provides great benefits by allowing us to generate new metrics and have those available to all of the toolset that is built on on top of Prometheus as a project. Well, we've explored KubeCost in some detail. Do you have anything else to add? Any other areas you want to explore? I think it would be like maybe interesting. Let me know if you think this would be like relevant, but like one kind of maybe why we started the project or something. Cause again, we, we truly started the, the project first and then the, uh, the like company or, you know, the startup behind it afterwards. And then I don't know if you think there'd be interest in the, like, you know, we have an open core model. So we have an open source repo that provides all this visibility, but then we have uh, like commercial products built on top, which are aimed more for kind of larger enterprises that need things like SAML and RBAC and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think the, the net result of that is uh, we've got a free tier that works for like, uh, you know, even medium sized companies uh, but then there are other like enterprise solutions available built on top of those. So I'm not sure if either one of those would be interesting to the... Let's go into both. Okay, awesome. So maybe you may hit on just kind of like why why we we started the company first. So I think there's like there's two parts of kind of why we we uh, started the, the project of KubeCost and then ultimately the company behind KubeCost, which is Stackwatch. Um, and I think, 
you know, first and foremost, it is uh, like the most rewarding things that I've ever worked on are when we, um, when I worked with a, a super engaged, motivated team to build something uh, from the ground up. And we, you know, like definitely saw the opportunity to do that here. And, and that is like deeply interesting for me, the ability to, to have a vision and, and just go and create. Um, and then part, uh, part two of this is we personally are just deeply attracted to uh, the problem space here. And at its root, we see an opportunity to, to really empower developers and get access, give them access to like real-time data when most teams have, have none here. And you know, one thing that we think that helps avoid again is this problem of, you know, getting a call from you know finance or you know maybe management, you know, after a month, a quarter, et cetera, and saying why did we spend all this you know money and and having to go and dig and find the answer. We wanted to again really empower engineers to at least just have that information at their disposal, right? So they aren't kind of. Uh, getting surprised by that phone call and just have, you know, some level of transparency or awareness, uh, you know, as they're kind of making different infrastructure decisions, but also just application level decisions. So I think it's really that opportunity to go and build something from scratch and then just really motivated by the underlying problems uh, that we've seen teams facing um, in this like transition to, to Kubernetes and, and cloud native. And then maybe part two, just talk a little bit about, given that we created the open source KubeCost project first, and again, we, we want to empower engineering teams or infrastructure teams of all shapes and sizes. Uh, we've made it a real focus to have a comprehensive, like valuable, you know, free product or, or community product. Uh, and that will, that will always be free. Um, and then where the company, uh, the commercial side of this uh, is layering on uh, enterprise features uh, that are valuable to companies of really large sizes. So things like SAML and RBAC, where you have uh, you know, many engineering teams and you have like multiple layers of, of management, you know, that gets increasingly valuable. Um, so that's kind of the, the strategic approach we've taken with the company. And we think that uh, allows us to hopefully have both a sustainable business, but also, again, staying very much true to our roots, which is we want this data to be accessible to teams of all sizes, all the way down to you know, a team of one or two engineers that wants this visibility. Uh, and we think that should, be, you know, that should be free and always free for, for smaller teams. Well, that's great. Are there any other subjects you want to explore? No, I think you know we we hit on a ton that's super relevant. Uh, I mean, I'm just super impressed with the research you've done here and the like depth of questions. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything you'd want to like circle back to where you felt like maybe I could provide some more data or anything like that. But overall, I think is yeah, just seriously impressed with how deep you go in it. It makes sense after like, you know, listening to other podcasts of yours, but it's, I don't know, it's especially 
like impressive when it's the like nuances of our own space. So thank you for, for taking the time to do that. And again, it, it shows, uh, in the, in the other podcasts of like, you know, just your ability to go deep on many subjects. Well, thanks for the compliment. Appreciate that. Of course. Cool. Well, Webb, thanks for coming on the show. I, I guess we can wrap up now. That sounds great.